Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. A week ago, Governor Mike DeWine wasn't all that interested in testing nursing homes for the coronavirus. Now he is. That's one of the things we'll be talking about on this episode of This Week in the CLE news podcast from Cleveland.com. I'm Chris Quinn, the editor at Cleveland.com, with my colleagues Jen Cahoon, Chris Bernowski, and Laura Johnston. Let's get started. Is Ohio increasing coronavirus testing in nursing homes after learning that 70% of the state's deaths have been in nursing homes in similar facilities? This was a bit of a surprise in yesterday's briefing, Jane Cahoon. Just a week ago, Mike DeWine was arguing that he did not see the necessity to do a lot of testing in nursing homes. And yesterday was a was a turnaround. Yeah. Could it have had something to do with the revelation that 70% of the coronavirus deaths have been people in nursing homes? perhaps. Anyway, they're going to start ramping up testing this week, but it is not going to be universal. They're going to test all staff members, but not patients. They're, those are, they're going to be tested on a case-by-case basis. You know, they'll give priority where there's been an outbreak, but they plan to send like 14 teams of 10 health officials into nursing homes across the state. They're going to investigate and determine how much of a risk each facility presents for the coronavirus. And then the National Guard's going to follow up and help with, with the testing. So so back up a minute. I mean, you're right that last week when he said he didn't see the necessity to do a lot of testing in nursing homes, the percentage of deaths in nursing homes was, was popularly known as 40%, but with the caveat that there was historical data missing. That data finally came out very late Wednesday. Our Rich Exner crunched it and came up with the 70% number. What? Why was it so wrong? Why for weeks did we have the wrong belief about what the percentage was? Because they were only reporting deaths that occurred since April 15th. And so Rich asked for the number of deaths before that, and he had it so that when the new numbers came out, he was able to add that in and as you said, crunch the numbers and figure out that it was a staggering 70%. Okay, but that's us. The public thought it was 40%. But you would think that the health department, which is the keeper of the numbers, would have known that it was much higher. And so you would that, think, you would think yeah. that Mike DeWine last week would not have said, I don't see as high a need for the testing or whatever he said. I, it's just a little bit surprising that. For us, it's a revelation, 70%. That's a staggering percentage of deaths in nursing homes. Uh, but for him to to then do a, a turnaround based on that when he should have had that knowledge all along, it just seems strange. Maybe they weren't sharing it with him either. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, you know, I wouldn't say that. I don't know that he ever said there's not a need to do this, but, I, you know, they've been working on testing capacity for a while now, and it has improved. So... He was wow, defensive, though. Yeah. He was, there was a question asked at a briefing last week about nursing homes, and he was a little bit defensive about not doing universal testing. Look, people have been asking. 
you did universal testing in prisons. You won't do universal testing in nursing homes. Do you value the lives of people in prisons more? We've talked about it. The state is the steward of all the prisons. There, a lot of nursing homes are private. They, they didn't test every prisoner, though, just in, in a couple of facilities, just to make that clear. It, that was not universal either. It was universal in the prisons, though, in certain prisons. In certain prisons, but yeah. not every, you know, all 49,000 inmates uh, in the system. Did, was there anything said yesterday about what they're going to do if, as they test in nursing homes? And, and they need extra people to do that. So they're going to use the National Guard, he said, to go in and assist in this testing. Is there anything they're going to do differently if they start to find pockets of it? Well, I think they think it's important to identify the staff members who have it because They might go into multiple facilities and they can kind of nip that in the bud by isolating them. And then if they have outbreaks at certain facilities, they can better, you know, they will do more testing there and determine how much of the population in a particular facility has it. And then I I think they just think that this is the way to save the most lives. There was another surprising set of numbers that DeWine mentioned. He said that of the state's 960 nursing homes, only about 200 have had experience with COVID-19. I would have thought, given the percentage of deaths, that this was more widespread in nursing homes, but it sounds like a bunch of nursing homes have taken the steps to keep it out. Well, that's what you would conclude. I, you know, I don't know. Can I be skeptical of that figure? I don't know. Where's Rich Exeter when you need him? Okay. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. How did it go Tuesday when pools and gyms reopened? We've talked a lot about this as the day came for the big reopening of these things. We wondered in particular how you could keep pools safe for social distancing. Laura Johnston, what did we see first at the gyms? And then let's talk about pools. Sure. So the gyms look ship shape, all sorts of changes to stop the spread of coronavirus. The water fountains are closed. Disposable masks are available. There are temperature screening stations. At Lifetime Fitness, classes are no longer scheduled back to back. They have a half hour block in between so they can clean the room and the equipment. Some cardio machines are off limits. We went to Orange Theory, which is a popular workout class facility with treadmills, weights, and rowing machines. Members had to wait outside, socially distanced, uh, before they could come in for class. They had to take their temperature beforehand. The classes sizes are smaller. So those people that came, they were very uh, cognizant of the changes. They were sanitizing everything, and everything looked good. The, The pools is a little more of a question mark. We actually couldn't find one that was open The YMCA is going to open its 11 Northeast Ohio pools on Thursday. Lifeguards were training on Tuesday. They're going to have lane lines in, and they're going to only let one swimmer in per lane. Then uh, eventually there'll be exercise classes at the beginning of June and then swim lessons in the middle of June. But still not saying how we're going to get a bunch of kids in the pool swimming around and not being close to each other. Yeah, as soon as they open, unless they limit the number of people, as we said yesterday, like three at a time, it's it's going to be going to be tough. But the gyms did do what we thought they would do. They they yeah. they looked like they took a lot of steps to keep people healthy. There, there was a big big set of people waiting outside the doors to get in too, right? Yeah, they said you know that their home workouts were just not cutting it. And for people who's who going to the gym is an essential part of their fitness and their mental health. Like I think a lot of people are really relieved to be able to get that part of their life back. Their alone time, 
uh, it's one thing to try to work out in your basement. You know, I have a treadmill. I've been on Jazzercise uh, videos, but I, I'm looking forward to being back in that space where you can just, you know, not have to worry about anything else other than than your fitness. So I think a lot of people were really happy to be back. And I think those people are going to make sure they follow the rules so they don't mess it up for themselves. Okay. So this week in the CLE. Did the U.S. Supreme Court order hundreds of inmates moved out of the federal prison in Elkton, Ohio, because they are vulnerable to the coronavirus? Chris Ranowski, this is a story that's been going on for a month, and it seems like we finally have reached the conclusion. What happened yesterday? In a uh, very, very brief ruling uh, that involves some procedural gymnastics, the Supreme Court declined to issue a stay that was requested by the Bureau of Prisons to an order that a federal judge in Cleveland issued saying that they needed to empty out or at least get like 800 at-risk inmates at a better place where they could be cordoned off away from any risk of contracting the virus. And the ACLU originally filed a, a lawsuit to get, you know, at-risk people out of the prison and, and, and federal judge James Gwynn agreed. And the prison bureau said it would compile a list of everyone who was at risk, but stopped short of saying it would make accommodations for all of them once it identified those people. You know, well, didn't, didn't the judge say make the list and then he gave him what, two weeks to move them either into halfway houses or other other facilities. Yeah. And, and I mean, they were, they were looking for things like, you know, c- compassionate care and, and like, like places that, you know, a lot of these older, you know, maybe overweight, maybe dealing with health problem kind of inmates. Yeah. So there was, there were two weeks, but then, you know, the Bureau of Prisons sort of bucked a little bit and said, you know, this is impractical, you know, as a branch of the justice department, they, they sort of appealed this up the, the appeals chain where, you know, they lost at the appeals level. And then, you know, the Supreme Court said, you know, we're we're not going to get involved with this, you know, just, you know, uh, listen to the lower courts. So there's so is it is it, it over now? I mean, that they, they, they will have to get those people out of there. Is that the uh, I mean, there's there's one more. I think there's like one more window for an appeal that was kind of left open through this ruling. Um, so I, I think time will tell whether that happens, you know, but it's it, what's important to remember about this prison, you know, this, this, I, I don't know if we said, we said Elkton at the beginning of this, but, but, you know, we're just a couple of weeks away from, you know, the national guard having to go into that jail, into that facility because the medical staff was operating at 50% capacity and they've had nine people die and hundreds of prisoners and, and staff members had been diagnosed with coronavirus. So it was uh, about as bad as it could get at one point. And so, you know, there was some urgency to this, but, you know, we're a couple of weeks into this whole legal wrangling. And, and so, you know, this week, and I think next week we'll sort of be, we'll have a better picture of, of exactly how they're going to accomplish this and, and sort of carry out what the Supreme court refused to meddle with. Okay. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What's the latest on Jimmy DeMora and the coronavirus in Elkton Prison? Jimmy DeMora is at the heart of a U.S. Supreme Court ruling that came down that will compel the people that run the Elkton Prison to make accommodations for people vulnerable to the virus. Jimmy DeMora's lawyer came out with a very strong statement yesterday, Chris Wernowski, and what was it? Well, I mean, his attorneys are are pretty emphatic that, you know, they should have let or put Jimmy somewhere else 
a long time ago. And, you know, this is, you know, we're how many weeks into this crisis and especially after the spotlight was sort of turned on Elkton, you know, Jimmy, who does have health problems, who, you know, is, I mean, you know, no offense to him, but he, he's a bigger fella and, and he's older and, you know, he, he, he really does sort of fit the, fit the bill of somebody who would be at risk at getting this. And, you know, sure enough on Friday, we found out from through his attorneys that he did get diagnosed with it, with coronavirus. So, so weeks ago, the judge, the ACLU goes to the judge, says there's a bunch of people vulnerable at Elkton, inmates are dying there. Judge says to the Bureau of Prisons, identify the people who are vulnerable and let's get them moved out of there. This would include Jimmy DeMora. The Bureau of Prisons fought and fought and fought until it went to the Supreme Court yesterday and the Supreme Court refused their appeal. But if they had done what the judge had said, according to Moore's attorney, in the timeline that the judge had established, DeMora very likely would not have coronavirus. I mean, that remains to be seen. I mean, it's hard to say when he got it. I mean, it. I mean, he, honestly, he could have had it before anything was filed in court and it just sort of reared up and he got tested recently. I mean, that's, you know, I, I, none of that has sort of been brought to light at this point. Although that's not what his lawyer told us. The lawyer sure. said, I've looked at the timeline and he he wouldn't have it if they had followed the order. I mean, the, the, the lawyer took back the timeline, the number of days, looked at the incubation period and is arguing that the Bureau of Prisons is responsible for DeMora having this virus, which... Like you said, Jimmy is vulnerable. I mean, you know, ostensibly he could die. Right. And, you know, and he's just one of 800 inmates who are in this boat. You know, my guess is there are are criminal defense attorneys who are working on appeals, who are are, you know, fighting for, you know, the constitutional rights of their their clients who are in that jail and and who probably have a, a very similar beef right now with with the BOP. So. You know, it's again, I it's it's worth it's worth stressing, you know, what Jimmy did and and what he was a part of was was a bad thing, a really bad thing for this county and really a black eye on government and the Democratic Party of Cuyahoga County. But, you know, when when he was sentenced to 28 years in prison, you know, he wasn't sentenced to die there. And and I think we have to we have to remember that it's. It's, Although his lawyer at the time did say a 28-year sentence was the equivalent of a death sentence because of his health conditions, but right. but this and, is very different. But that. this is, you know, I, you know, not to downplay the seriousness of public corruption, but you know, he's not a he's not a murderer, he's not a you know a rapist or a child molest. You know, he he is somebody who violated a public trust, and and there there are people that the prisons are very emphatic they're not going to get a chance to get out, and those are in those categories I just mentioned, and and you know it's but at the same time the jails do have a responsibility to make sure that the people that are in the prisons and stuff are are, are not at risk. I mean, you're if you sentence somebody to jail, you have an obligation to take care of them. We've seen time after time after time where. You know, a lot of corner cutting happens in jails and, you know, and, you know, even in this case, you know, we, we, we saw, and I mentioned this earlier in the podcast that, you know, this, they, they were operating at like 50% of their medical capacity when DeWine sent the national guard in there. So it's, there's a lot of what ifs, you know, and, and if, if you, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, you can go back and say, well, what would have happened if they had a proper medical staff and what would have happened? if the Bureau of Prisons didn't try to fight this to 
to the Supreme Court and what would and what happened. we know what we know about Demora just from his attorney is he's has he has some symptoms but we don't know the severity right so and we'll just and have so, to keep checking in to find out how he's doing if he if he were to get critically ill or I mean it just would kind of put a spotlight on the Bureau of Prisons they're they're fighting the judge's order I mean this is this is kind of ugly ugly stuff for the Bureau of Prisons which we've talked about really is not accountable to anybody. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Did crowds form when the Bureau of Motor Vehicle Offices reopened Tuesday for the first time in two months? Jane Cahoon, the state's put a lot of strategy into preventing crowds from forming at the BMV offices, giving people a three-month reprieve for expired tags and licenses and asking people to do things online. Did the strategy work? (laughs) <laughs> no one listened to that. Yes. I mean, they, they were stressing these online and mail-in options and they said, hey, stay safe. Don't don't rush back there. But all around the state, we saw these long snaking lines outside the BMVs. Apparently, people were really eager to get in there and renew their licenses despite this, this grace period. And interestingly, you know, they, they wanted to get this get in line online program uh, all established before they reopened it so you could secure your place in line online, you know, before you went to the BMV. And it crashed because they got more than 240,000 requests by 8 a.m. So there you have it. So so people are not accepting the three-month reprieve, right? There are people that have to have a valid license to get a job. And so they just they got to get in line. They want to get it now. That, that's what we're yeah, saying. I guess they don't accept the fact that it is still valid now during this grace period. I don't know if employers would give people a hard time about that, but for whatever reason, people felt they had a reason to go there at the reopening. I think I may have a reason. And and this is Chris Warnowski. You have to imagine that some people might not trust the idea that if they're driving around with expired plates, that police won't stop them. And and so my guess is that there are are certain segments of our community that are are really skeptical about the fact that they're going to be legally allowed to drive around without without a valid sticker on their car. Or, you know, it, it remains to be seen if, if cops have been ordered to stop stopping people for having, you know, and, and, and whether although, they're although this was broad based, this wasn't just in the urban centers, this was. I mean, on on social media, people were posting photo after photo. Many of them didn't seem to show social distancing. They were just kind of crammed together. I don't know. It, 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 this seemed like it was a universal worry in Ohio, not specific to any population or geography. I mean, maybe the messaging didn't get out. I mean, we're assuming that everybody knows this. And so, you know, it's, it, I mean, it can be any number of variables. Boo-hoo, yeah, they just, don't listen to this podcast, obviously. Clearly, <laughs> or, they, or, or they just don't <laughs> believe what they hear. I mean, I, or maybe it's just that kind of nervousness. I have an expired license. I don't want an expired license. I don't want an expired plate. You would think the state would have taken more steps to keep people separated as they lined up across parking lots and, and things. In Mayfield, it looked like they were spaced out in, in a proper way, six feet apart. But in other places, they just seemed like they were squished up together. Laura Johnson? I was just going to say, I feel like, you know, everything's been on hold. And so as soon as you could go do something, people want to get this checklist off, like, 
you know, I had all this stuff in my basement that I wanted to give to Savers, the thrift store. So when they opened, I just wanted it out of my house. Like, I feel like people are like, okay, I know I need to do this. And it feels good to check something off your list. So maybe that's, they were thinking, well, nobody else is going to go the first day back. I don't know. Okay. Type A personalities. <laughs> it's interesting. It'll be interesting to see if those lines continue or if people start to spread out. It's this week in the CLE. What is Destination Cleveland doing to get people back in downtown Cleveland? We have done several pieces of content showing that downtown Cleveland is a ghost town. In the daytime when there are no workers there, in the nighttime when people are not showing up for recreation, they're starting to trickle back into restaurants, but it is not the thriving downtown scene that Destination Cleveland has long had success in in building. So, Laura Johnston, what is Destination Cleveland going to do to change that? So the agency plans to announce its first initiative in months to try to get back into the regional travel game after the pandemic. There's going to be a big emphasis on safety and cleanliness, as well as being outdoors where the coronavirus is less likely to spread. That means um, hyping some some outdoor spaces, including Lake Erie, uh, the Cleveland Cultural Gardens, the Botanical Garden, uh, even down to the National Park, which obviously is a little bit further. But They also want to get residents involved in luring tourists. They want us to welcome our friends and family to come visit. And they're focusing first on people who live in Ohio. And later in the summer, they're going to market maybe to adjacent states. So so we expect an announcement of what their program is any day. Yes, this week. Susan Glazer had a story about this. And so they will be starting a new campaign. This is a big deal for Cleveland. Tourism is responsible for $9.4 billion in economic impact in 2018, 71,000 jobs. And those are not going to be happening if nobody's coming to visit. I mean, we've reported over and over again about the hotels downtown, how there was no one in there. I believe they were furloughing people at Destination Cleveland. And so, you know, to get these people back to work, we need people to come. Except if you're doing a campaign that's aimed at locals. Mm-hmm. They're not going to stay in hotels, which no. is where Destination Cleveland gets its money is from the hotel tax. So so if you're aiming it at locals, you're basically aiming it at restaurants and, and local attractions True. like when the Rock Hall Museum opens but again. You do have to start somewhere. And I think to get people back downtown, they'll begin to feel comfortable with it. And then the, the locals feel comfortable about, with it, then maybe other people will come. And they talked about making Cleveland if there's a choice between two cities, they'll, I want to go to Cleveland because I know it's safe and I know it's clean so that people wouldn't be feeling like they were giving, you know, risking something to come to Cleveland. We've talked to a lot of people though, who, who just don't feel comfortable going back to restaurants and attractions. And so it's a, it's a balancing act for destination Cleveland to, you you know, you don't want to lobby people to take risks that they're not comfortable with. Right. On the other hand, you do want people who don't consider that too risky, that people who do want to go to restaurants, you want to appeal to them by showing them that, hey, look, if you go to these restaurants or, or whatever their campaign is, you'll be safe. So we we'll look forward to seeing we how they're going about, to pull it off. Yeah, we've talked about this before, and I think you do have to be creative um, about coming up with events that are socially distanced and safe and ways that people could watch, you know, watch something on a big screen outdoors. You can't just expect things to go back to normal. You're going to have to be creative here. It's this week in the CLE. 
Did we hit a sad milestone with the number of coronavirus deaths in Ohio? Dan Cahoon, every day we get the new numbers that show the number of cases, the number of hospitalizations, the number of people who've died. It's a it's it's so easy to look at those as numbers and forget what we're dealing with. And Tuesday should give us pause to think about what these numbers mean. Right. Unfortunately, we had our 2000th death recorded as of Tuesday, 2002 to be exact. And those deaths are spread across 67 of our 88 counties. And the total cases now exceeds 33,000. That's it's just a, a striking number. 2000 grandparents and wives and husbands. Right. I and mean, it's just there's a lot of grief that this thing has caused in a relatively short period of time. We talk all the time about flu deaths and, and other and other things. But as we climb over the 2000 number, it, we need to take note. New York Times did an interesting thing over the weekend where they printed the names of I forget how many it is, but it was 12 pages of names of people who have died from this that they called from obituaries and things that just kind of drive home the point that we're losing a lot of our our fellow citizens. Right. It's not just data. There's a person behind every number and a family, and it's terrible. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. How much is the federal government and Cleveland spending to bail out Cleveland Hopkins International Airport during the coronavirus? We talked a few weeks ago about how the airport has very little revenue coming in because they get a lot of their revenue from the landing fees of the planes that come in and out. And with so few people traveling, there's a lot less of that. Chris Ranaski, <clears throat> the Cleveland administration, did something recently to, to prop up the airport. What was it? So the city uh, announced that it is going to give $46 million of the federal aid that it received to help the airport sort of absorb the blow of the downturn that happened as a result of the coronavirus. And Mayor Frank Jackson said it on Friday that uh, $20 million of that will be used to offset those losses in the landing fees that the airlines uh, you know, pay to use the airport. And then $18 million of it will be used to offset losses and concessions for all the restaurants and bars and coffee shops that are there. And then $8 million will be used to support the airport's expenses in 2021. Um, and this all came out, I think, Friday in a, in a well, report. Well, when you say the, to offset the concessions, the concessions contribute to the airport's bottom line. So this money would replace the money that the, the, the I guess the profit, I guess is the word you're after, that right. the concessions contribute to the airport operations or or does it sound like more of a subsidy of the companies that run those concessions? I mean, is it both? I don't know. I mean, I think it's more, I, I think it's just to, I, I mean, the, the way that it was stressed to us was that it was using to, to offset the loss in concessions. So, yeah. so, so it's, you, know, it's, you know, I mean, you got to imagine, you know, you got to think of like Starbucks and, you know, Great Lakes and all those places that have those, um, you know, those restaurants and, and shops out there. They're probably struggling quite a bit. As well. well, and they, look, the cost, they haven't reduced their costs of airport operations. They've got to keep that thing running. They've got yeah. to keep it, keep the temperature right. They've got to clean it. So even though there are far fewer people going through it, their, their costs don't go down 
Uh, and we wondered what they were going to do. And so now we, we have an answer. So the, and just to note that the, the federal money that the city received is, is from the, the CARES Act, which the listeners might remember from the extra $600 you got if you had to go on unemployment. And this was staggering. I, you know, I hadn't heard these statistics until I saw the story. And, and WEWS reported this first last week that the airport had a 96% drop in passengers in April compared to the same time last year. And in March, 400,000 fewer passengers used the airport than in the same month in 2019. So that's, I mean, that is, that hurts. I mean, that is a, a monumental blow. And I know. Are everybody- any, are any of you, Jane Cahoon, Laura Johnson or Chris <laughs> planning to fly anytime soon? Next- uh, <laughs> Jane, Jane has what to think about the next time I was thinking was next, next April. So we'll see if it's safe by then. I'm hoping to go to a wedding out West in October, but I, I just, I can't bring myself to make the reservation, even though they're giving you, you know, a grace period to rebook if you need to. I, I just, I can't do it. And every, I, I mean, I have a lot of uh, unused uh, airline credits from when this all started. And, and I got to be honest, I have no burning desire to use them anytime soon. Like every time I look up and see an airplane, I'm like, who's flying right now? (laughs) Well, and and the problem with those credits, I was, I was looking at a set last night, they will expire and they might expire before you feel comfortable flying again. It's a, it's, I mean, you know, people talk about how after nine 11, there was a period where people were uncomfortable flying and then they started flying again. But that's very different. It was a different kind of security threat that the government ramped up to to deal with. This is much more the, the the chance of getting sick with something that can kill you. It'll be interesting to see how long it takes for the for the airlines to to come back or if they do. You're listening to this week in the CLE. How much is Cleveland State University losing because of the coronavirus? Colleges like everybody else have been hard hit. We've been reporting on plans to reopen campuses and do online learning, but the numbers coming from Cleveland State University are pretty staggering, Laura Johnston. What are they? Yeah, CSU has already lost $8 million this this fiscal year that ends, I believe, in June, and then it could lose more than $37 million, and that is a combination of the loss of state aid as well as anticipated enrollment declines, additional operating expenses from the pandemic, like cleaning um, and shifting more than 2,000 courses online, um, those all that all costs money. So all, a lot of public colleges, I think actually all colleges, are finding themselves in this predicament, and they're going to have to come up with a solution. Okay, well, <laughs> that's a lot. <laughs> the solution is you got to cut a lot of expenses. Exactly. Be, they're going to do some four-week furloughs, tiered pay cuts for six months, a hiring freeze for 70 open positions and reduced spending. And we've seen this coming out of Akron. We've seen it coming out of Kent. And I think we're just going to keep getting um, reports of how they're going to keep dealing with this. We, we talk a lot about how difficult this year is on the high school graduates. Uh, their Their world will continue to be upside down as they become the first class of freshmen to go to college in in this unusual time. And uh, it must be a challenge because everything they thought they knew about their future has been turned on a dime into something very different. But, you know, maybe it'll be the resilient generation that, you know, saves us all later. It's this well, week in the CLE. 
All right. This was another screwed up technical difficulty podcast. <laughs> I think we Hopefully had no swear words got through. Right. I, yeah. I don't think I said any this time. I mean, uh, I can add some here at the end if you want. No, no. Right. I, uh, I, I thank everybody. Thank you all for bearing with us. Thank the listeners for bearing with us. We'll be back with another episode tomorrow. <laughs> technical difficulties notwithstanding. <laughs> <laughs>